a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week we have kind of a spooky episode. Obviously not in the traditional Halloween ghosts and goblins sense. We're not really a ghost story kind of show, but sometimes real life is just as scary, if not scarier. Like what's scarier? Forgetting that you have an assignment due tomorrow or two evil ghost wins? Or what about having an experiment go all wrong and now you can't graduate? Or a virus takes over the entire world and makes everyone stay inside for days on end and you can't leave your house without a mask and everyone is freaking out and too soon? Either way, I would say those things are way scarier than zombies or witches turning you into a toad. In fact, I think being a toad might not be so terrible some days. What I'm trying to say is the things you never anticipated happening are sometimes hella scary. So, uh, happy Halloween? Anyway, our first story is from Esther Stone. It was recorded in the Before Times at Caveat in New York City in September 2018. The theme that night was Game Changer. A few years ago, I made a trip way, way, way upstate into the Adirondacks to a one prison town called Dunmora, uh, to visit the uh, maximum security prison. It's the biggest maximum security prison in New York. I was accompanied by a uh, very snappily dressed clinical psychologist and a cameraman whose faded jeans and trainer combo showed a lifelong disrespect for fashion. When my boss said to me, do you want to direct an interview with a serial killer? I was terrified. So immediately I said yes. Uh, I was scared of meeting a mass murderer, yes, but I was more terrified that I was gonna mess it up. It was my first directing job for TV. If you mess up one directing job, it's hard to get another one. So I really wanted to do a good job. I was doing a show called The Brain, and uh, the sec this section of the uh, show was called The Evil Brain. And <clears throat> the hypothesis, hypothesis for the evil brain was that psychopaths have very small amygdalas. So the almond-shaped structure, I'm sure all you scientists know this, I'm not a scientist, so I think it's about there, I'm not quite sure, uh, in the brain is smaller in psychopaths than it is in uh, you or me. And uh, if you show them, if you put them in an fMRI machine and you show them pictures of cute kittens or you show them pictures of uh, people being tortured, they have a very, uh, they don't have a very big emotional reaction to either thing, which is what enables them uh, to do the terrible things they do. So for the sports section of the show, uh, we interviewed a baseball player. So for the evil section of the show, we wanted to provide a hook, the content. It was a little sciencey. There was some graphics. We just didn't think it was quite gonna grab people. So we wanted to interview a serial killer. 
in America, if uh, in New York, actually, it's different in California, you can't interview in prisons with cameras. But in uh, New York, if you have the permission from the governor and you have the per permission from the prisoner, you're allowed to interview a, uh, uh, a prisoner. So I wrote to uh, a serial killer who's in prison and I got permission to go and film. So there I am with the uh, clinical psychologist and the uh, cameraman and it took us about two hours to get into the prison because we had to check everything for contraband. I had the humiliation of having to remove my bra because it has this metal cups kind of wiring to keep it up and it set off all the uh, uh, metal detectors. So finally, the steel doors open and uh, I enter the prison. And the first thing I smelt was like, it was like some sort of mixture between uh, dirty laundry and cabbage. Like it just didn't smell good. And I could hear like in the distance, kind of like some banging and some shouting. And at this point, I'm pretty nervous. My stomach is like slurping, slurping around. Um, like, I think I'm gonna be sick, but uh, I'm not. And I carry on and I'm just thinking about the 3000 uh, murderers and rapists and other uh, not very nice people that are in this prison. So we get down to the bowels of the prison and uh, we're waiting there for uh, the serial killer to arrive. I'm sitting there, my nerves are quite high by now, and he walks into the room. I was expecting kind of like leg chains and handcuffs, but there weren't any of those things. And to be honest, he looks terrible. He's got a ponytail kind of limping down his back. You can tell his face is kind of uh, like pasty and bloated, uh, like lack of good food and a lack of fresh air. And uh, he's definitely put on weight in the 14 years since he's been incarcerated. So he says uh, hi and immediately puts out his hand. Now, I don't know if, if he noticed, because I'm like, shit, what do I do here? But I mirrored his gesture. And his hand felt like very warm and like big and flabby. And when I took it away, I, I kind of brushed it on my skin off my skirt because I wanted to get rid of the feeling because uh, when he killed his victims, he strangled uh, most of them. So uh, uh, he was in prison for murdering nine, uh, serving 203 years for murdering nine women. And uh, they think that he killed 16. So he said, how, how, I said, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> He said, it's like being a dog in here. He said, I spend most of the time asleep and then the rest of the time uh, is frenetic activity. I said, it's a bit like that when I worked at the checkout in my local supermarket. <laughs> and to which he laughed and said, yeah, but I think there's more fights than there were at your local supermarket, hopefully. And then I laughed and then I realized I was creating this rapport with him. And uh, that's my job, I'm a TV producer, that's what we do. But it kind of felt uncomfortable to be creating it with him. So 
I said, okay, sit down, we'll do the, we'll do the interview. So uh, I framed up, like the cameraman framed up, I approved the frame. We um, uh, the started, the clinical psychologist starts asking the questions, we roll on the interview. And it's a sad story. He was um, adopted, never felt like he belonged. He was bullied um, at school. He had his arm broken in three places in summer camp. Uh, despite having an IQ of about 144, he couldn't get a job after work, after school. So he ended up doing gardening and spending most of his money on prostitutes and drugs. And the clinical psychologist is asking all these questions about his background because that's his area of interest. And I'm sitting there and I realize we've only got an hour for this interview. And I have content that I want to get and it's the hook for the show. So I realized the clinical psychologist wasn't getting what I needed. So I didn't know what to do. And then suddenly I, so I wrote a note and I handed it to the clinical psychologist and he read it and uh, the serial killer looked at him as he read it and I was burning up with shame that he could see what I'd written on the note because I'd written, ask him about the murders. So he did and he starts talking about them, how the first person he killed, he hit them until his arms went numb and he couldn't feel any more. And in uh, one new year, he wrote a to-do list. He wrote, change the oil on the car, uh, fix my mom's windows, and stop killing women. And inside, the producer checklist in my head is zinging like a Vegas slot machine. Because I know I've got the bites that I need to make the show. And so I know that this interview is going to be a success. It's going to be the hook that we need for the show. So the interview finishes and uh, I say thank you, it seemed a bit inappropriate, but uh, off he goes, he disappears. And as I'm walking back with the, uh, um, uh, one of the guards, I start making chit chat with him and I said, oh, uh, this, he's this serial killer, he must get really bored being on his own in that cell all the time. He said, no lady, you are his entertainment. People like you come and he tells these stories and that's what he gets off on. Like that's what he fills his hours with when he's on his own. And suddenly I like didn't feel so great about what I'd done and what I'd asked for. And I realized that uh, <clears throat> in like trying to preserve my own reputation, what I hadn't realized I was doing is just feeding his ego. And that's uh, one of the reason I don't mention the guy's name because I don't want to give him any more, uh, any more bumps to his ego than I already did. And I questioned whether the value of, you know, having the show was educational, yeah, but the value of giving a serial killer a mouthpiece uh, like that, whether it was really worth it um, <clears throat> uh, for the show. Since then, both our TV careers have flourished. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, seen other interviews with him in the same room, talking about the same things. And it just so happened that the next job I got was uh, on a wedding show. And I loved it. White dresses, cakes, bustles. Brides can be a little crazy. 
but uh, they're not psychopaths. Um, <laughs> well, not all. <laughs> but I thought about it recently. If uh, someone asked me to go and interview a murderer again and ask him about his crimes, I would know that I was gonna be manipulated, but I'm not a hero in this story. I would say yes, and I would just try and do a really good job. That was Esther Stone. Esther Stone is a London transplant who fell in love with New York. Switching continents sparked a career change from IT to TV. Now she's a producer with a wide range of credits, including documentary, The Brain, Mysteries at the Museum, and the ever-popular wedding staple, Say Yes to the Dress. Her work has brought her into contact with royalty, neuroscientists, psychopaths, and a lot of white dresses. Okay. Before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We have tons of live shows coming up in November, starting with our first live online show in partnership with the World Health Organization. On November 2nd, three infodemic managers share their own personal experience about managing the infodemic during the time of COVID-19. It's free to attend and will be hosted by our very own Lily B. and Kent Whipple. So register at storycollider.org shows. Also coming up in November, we're back at Jewelbox Theater in Seattle, and we'll be in Boise, Idaho on November 10th. We're also going to be back in the UK and London, as well as New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and more. You can check out storycollider.org shows for tickets, and if you enter promo code SCIENCESTORY at checkout, you'll get 10% off your tickets. That's S-C-I-N-C-E STORY, all one word, for a 10% discount, just for being a podcast listener and because we love seeing you at our shows. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclutter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at StoryCollider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. Also, if you're fed up with listening to ads on the podcast, you can always sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thestoryclutter. Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Sarah Mazrui. It was performed at Paminar Cafe in Toronto in September 2022. The theme that night was Flying High. I got married in October of 2019, and I had all these basic girl dreams of a honeymoon in the Greek islands. White houses on the hills, hotels with infinity pools. This was my favorite part of wedding planning, because I love traveling, I love getting on planes. 
But I should say that as much as I love traveling and getting on planes, I have an unhealthy obsession with Mayday, the airplane crash investigation show. That's why I always pick a seat at the back of the plane because statistically you have a higher chance of survival in case of a plane crash. I've watched every episode at least twice and could tell you all the ways that a plane could crash from like pilot error to um, landing conditions, mechanical problems, even wildlife getting stuck somewhere on the plane. I'm fully aware of every possible way that I could die in a plane crash. It's totally fine. But being on a Mayday episode as an airplane crash survivor is at the top of my bucket list, which I know doesn't look good coming from a Middle Eastern, so <laughs> don't tell anyone. Anyways, as we're planning for our beautiful Greek honeymoon, we get an invite to my sister-in-law's wedding uh, in Australia for March of 2020. There's no way that we can afford a honeymoon in the Greek islands and then a trip to Australia. So we decide to kill two birds with one stone. We would just take a month off, travel through Australia. We would start with the Melbourne area where the wedding was at and then ditch the in-laws, go drive through the Great Ocean Road, fly to Sydney so I could see where my husband grew up and then end our trip in Cairns to see the Great Barrier Reef. A couple of weeks before our trip, COVID was starting to become a thing. I remember watching the news and seeing like out the outbreaks in China, but I kind of felt like it was gonna be one of those things that we would hear about, but it wouldn't really happen here, kind of like SARS or the swine flu. So March 4th rolled around and we began our trip from Toronto to Melbourne with a layover in LA. The flight from LA to Melbourne was 15 and a half hours long. And what I love to do on long flights is get a window seat, take some meds, knock myself out, and sleep for a majority of the flight. But I never miss meal service. Like, I never miss food. And this time was no different. I woke up, I had whatever it was, dinner, lunch, I don't even know. And I put my headphones in and I put on a movie, not really to watch the movie, but more as like white noise to help me fall back asleep. Then I noticed a flight attendant walk over with an older lady, like the ones that give you like grandma wipes, but like she's like so properly dressed, you would never find her dead wearing yoga pants on a plane. And I'm like, is she coming back from like visiting her grandkids in LA? Is she going to Melbourne to like meet them for the first time? Or is she just like having a late life crisis and wants to like cross Australia off her bucket list? The flight attendant actually helped her to the flight attendant jump seat, which was a couple of rows in front of us, and then proceeded to put on an oxygen mask for her. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, is she out of breath? Does she have COVID? Should I be wearing a mask? What is happening? Meanwhile, I still got my headphones in, pretending like I'm watching a movie, but really, now I've got front row seats to this like live show in front of me. And then all of a sudden, I hear a thud and I look over and the lady's now unconscious on the ground. And the flight attendants rush over, 
They like raise her leg, check her pulse, and eventually she regains consciousness. And then they're trying to figure out if she's tra traveling alone or if she's with someone. And it turned out that she was traveling alone. And I kept thinking how scared and terrified I would be if I was sick and on a plane. It's pretty bad. And then the flight attendants came on board, uh, came on the intercom, asked if there was a doctor on board. A gynecologist and a family physician came forward. Um, and just a few seconds later, an ER nurse came by. But the flight attendant was like, no, no, thank you. We've got this. We've got two doctors. We don't need the ER nurse. And in my head, I'm like, ER nurse? This is an emergency. Like, this would make perfect sense. But no, you've got a gynecologist. Like, for fuck's sake, when was the last time that the gynecologist looked at anything other than a vagina? Like, how was she going to help this passenger? But no, the ER nurse had to go back. And then my angry thoughts got interrupted at the sight of these doctors pulling out a defibrillator and starting CPR on the now unconscious woman. They kept rotating, doing CPR. A few minutes later, the, um, the flight attendant came over, asked one of the doctors if she could go up to the cockpit to update the control tower. And I remembered from one of the Mayday episodes that if you have a really sick passenger on board, you could have a mayday call and you could have an emergency landing at a nearby airport. So I got really excited. I'm like, we're going to have that mayday call. I look over at my screen to see where the little plane is, where the nearest airport is. And as far as I could see, it was just ocean. It was just water, water, and absolutely nowhere to land. And it didn't help that we were on an A380, the world's largest plane that couldn't land at just at any airport. And that's when it hit me. She was either going to regain consciousness or she was going to die on this flight right in front of my eyes. And then I got really, really scared, almost feeling like I was the unconscious person on the ground. A good 30 minutes went by. The doctors and the flight attendants kept rotating. They continued to do CPR. I got told to like sit back and stop watching, um, but I, obviously I couldn't. And then I saw the pilot coming by, and I knew that wasn't good news. He was there to call time of death. And then they, they moved her body, and they laid her on a row of seats just a few feet from us covered her up with a blanket to make it look like she was sleeping. And then the flight continued. Now for the remainder of the flight, I tried to like watch a movie, fall back asleep, but I really couldn't. All I could do was just like keep looking over at her like white, lifeless feet dangling out in the aisle. I shed a few tears. And then I'm like, okay, I'm probably making everybody else around me uncomfortable, so maybe I shouldn't cry. And I just kept playing the whole thing in my head over and over, hoping that it was just a bad dream, which happens to me often when I watch like a couple of Mayday episodes before going to bed. The flight continued for a few more hours. Eventually we landed. Flight attendants came on the intercom once we landed. 
and asked all passengers to remain seated so that the paramedics could get to a passenger that wasn't feeling well. Not that she was dead, not that she had been dead for like the past few hours. No, she just wasn't feeling well. At no point during the flight, or even when we landed, was there a mention of a dead body being on board. And it just made me think of like, how many other dead bodies had I ever like flown with? Out of all the ways that I knew I could die on a plane, I never thought that this, this, would, this could be a possibility for your heart to just stop beating and for you to just stop breathing while the plane was in perfect condition. Thank you. That was Sarah Mesrui. Sarah Mesrui is a planetary scientist, an educational developer, and a science communicator with a passion for sharing the wonders of the universe with the public. Sarah is also passionate about increasing the status of women in STEM, as well as equity, diversity, and meaningful inclusion. She is currently an educational developer at Toronto Metropolitan University's Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. And she's also a Story Collider producer for The Toronto Show. The Story Collider is so grateful to Esther and Sarah for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, and with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland, and Sarah Mazruri and me, Misha Gajewski, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with stories about growth science. Yay! Until then, thanks for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.